0: Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast bringing you live constitutional conversations held at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. This week, we're sharing another program held back in March before the National Constitution Center went remote. This program is part of our year-long celebration of the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. It features New York Lieutenant Governor Kathleen Hochul and former Congresswomen Melissa A. Hart and Donna F. Edwards. They explore the unfinished work of women's suffrage and how the fight for constitutional change shaped women's involvement in public life. They also discuss why females make up less than a quarter of Congress and what needs to be done to improve women's representation in government. The conversation is moderated by Lauren Leader, co founder and CEO of All In Together, a nonprofit organization that seeks to empower women to participate in civic and political life. First, National Constitution Center President Jeffrey Rosen introduces Lauren. So here's Jeff.
1: And, and now it is my great pleasure to introduce my friend and colleague. Lauren Leader. she is co-founder and CEO of All In Together. She's dedicated her life and career to advancing women and business. She, uh, her first book was Crossing the Thinnest Line, which debuted in the top 50 on Amazon. She is a frequent speaker, commentator, and advocate for women's equality, and she will tell us about the crucially important mission of All In Together, and then we'll introduce and moderate our next panel. Please join me in welcoming Lauren Leader.
2: Right, we're, doing, we're doing these. Okay. Uh, thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Elena. It's such a joy to be here at the Constitution Center. And Jeff and I started thinking about this event um, a number of months ago. Obviously, we did not anticipate uh, some of the world events that would be happening. So we wanted to thank all of you uh, for being here. Uh, I know it's um, been a strange week and we're so thrilled that so many of our speakers came. Unfortunately, some of them could not uh, for some of the reasons that have been in the news, including Margaret Hoover, my dear friend and colleague. So I will be standing in for her for our amazing panel. Um, but I did want to just st- take a minute to talk about the work that we're doing at All In Together because it connects so deeply to really where are we as a country 100 years after suffrage. All In Together was founded five years ago as one of the only nonpartisan and truly strictly so nonpartisan women's civic education organizations in the United States, and we train women up and down the economic and political spectrum all over America on the basics of political participation. It turns out that one of the the realities that keeps women on the sidelines of our political process today is that they feel overwhelmingly that they lack the knowledge and the insights that they need in order to fully participate. We have a civics crisis in the United States. Uh, Most Americans couldn't answer uh, the questions on our uh, citizenship test. Uh, 70% of Americans can't name a single person who represents them in elected office. And so in that context, women, 100 years after getting the right to vote, are outvoting men and have done so in every election since 1980. They are the majority of the electorate. And in fact, black women, who I think are finally starting to get their due in the public discourse, especially since our recent primaries in South Carolina, are the most likely to be registered to vote and the most likely to turn out at the polls of any group of Americans. And so women have enormous power and influence in our political process, and yet there remain enormous gaps to their full and equal participation in the American political process and in American society. So I said that we outvote men, and that has been true since 1980. And yet, in many other measures of political engagement and participation, women are still behind. They are less likely to lobby their uh, representatives, less likely to make phone calls or send letters or uh, lobby in person to their elected representatives. Um, And they are less likely to see the political process as a way to make the country better. A hundred years after suffrage, women are still much more likely to volunteer for nonprofit organizations, for school boards, and community organizations than they are to participate fully in our political process. Our mission at All In Together is to help close those education gaps, to help women get the tools and resources they need to be full advocates, full citizens, full participants in our democracy. And that mission remains critically true today. We obviously are all cognizant of the incredible gains that women made in the 116th Congress through the midterm elections in 2018. And it is indeed a moment of great celebration to see this record number of women that have been elected uh, to the highest offices, not just to congressional and the Senate offices, but also in state houses across the country. Uh, Our previous speakers mentioned Virginia and the ratification of the ERA in the state of Virginia. That was possible because women not only gained uh, significant seats in the 2018 midterms in the Virginia legislature, but for the first time, a woman, a Jewish woman, is now the speaker of the Virginia state legislature. And yet, there are still very few states where women are even at parity in terms of representation. Nevada is at nearly 50% in the state legislature. Uh, Guam is at 50%. And yet, across the country, in most states, we are still not above 30% representation. And yes, even with this historic number of women elected to 116th Congress, we are barely at 30%. Today, there remain only 13 Republican women left in the House of Representatives. So when you look around the landscape, there is much to celebrate. There is tremendous work that remains to be done. The World Economic Forum, ranks the United States 96th in the world for the political parity of women, 96th. When we found it all in together in 2015, the United States was at 54th. We have dropped to 96th in those years. That is, of course, partially because we remain one of the few countries, and there are 59 other nations that have elected women heads of state ahead of our nation, and we, of course, have not and apparently will not be doing so in this cycle either. Uh, But in addition, we now today have the lowest number of women in the presidential cabinet that we've had in 40 years. And so for every step that we make forward, for all the great strides that there are to celebrate, we remain still so far behind so much of the world in terms of that full uh, representation of women, the full vision that the suffragists had 100 years ago when they ratified the 19th Amendment. There's more work to do. And lastly, before I welcome up our amazing panel, who are really uh, an incredible representation of the great successes of women's suffrage, the great successes of the women's movement over these last 100 years, and hopefully for 100 more years to come, it's worth it to put it in context as well. How are women doing overall in the United States today? Well, unfortunately, not as well as many other nations when it comes to political parity. There's much to celebrate. Women are now 50% of the workforce. They are a majority of the primary breadwinners in American society. They are the majority of the college degree earners uh, across almost every field and discipline, with a few small exceptions, like computer science and engineering. They are the majority of the life sciences degrees, the law degrees, the advanced degrees, extraordinary achievement. And yet also, women remain the majority of Americans in poverty. Seventy percent of Americans in poverty are women and children. The vast majority of minimum wage earners in the United States are women. And so when you look at the landscape of how well we have done, how far we have come, it's also important to recognize how much more work there is to do for women to become full and equal members of American society and how much harder we have to work to get to parity. It's a sobering, and also inspiring and motivating moment, I think, for so many of us who spend our lives working on these issues. Uh, But it's an important time for all of us to continue to step up and lead and find those opportunities. So with that, I would like to welcome up our extraordinary panel. I think we are missing a chair. Uh, First of all, Congresswoman Donna Edwards from Maryland's 4th District, who many of you also know uh, from her many uh, appearances. On MSNBC, on CNN, on ABC, bringing her brilliance uh, to the airwaves. She was in Congress from 2008 to 2017. She was also the first director of the National Network to End Domestic Violence. I spoke about the the, the sort of ups and downs of how Americans are doing. There's no other measure. In some ways, it's more sobering. And the statistics on the numbers of women who still experience domestic violence in this country one in three American women, one in three, are victims of domestic violence. It speaks to, again, how far we have to go. But Donna Edwards has been a champion for those issues. Please join me in welcoming Donna. To whatever to um, please also join me in welcoming former Congresswoman Melissa Hart from Pennsylvania's 4th District in Pittsburgh, right, just outside of Pittsburgh. She was the first Republican woman elected to the state Senate in Pennsylvania when she was 28 years old. Mm-hmm. So Emily take that, AOC. Yeah. She <laughs> currently runs a political media strategy organization. We're so thrilled to have you. Come, come sit, we're doing this on a rolling basis. And then I take special pleasure, please come sit. I take special pleasure in welcoming my dear friend and also official mentor, which I'll say a word about, uh, Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul from the great state of New York, my home state, uh, who is also now the chair of the Women's Suffrage Commission for the state of New York, which we're so excited about. And she is also, in addition to her role as Lieutenant Governor, is a former member of Congress herself. So we're very lucky that we have so much of Congress represented. And uh, just a word about Kathy as she's coming up. Um this past year, uh, I decided to put my own um, money where my mouth was, or time where my mouth was. And I ran for office in Westchester County in New York. Um, I won, and I won not in small part to the amazing mentorship of the lieutenant governor who called me constantly, haranguing me to make sure I was not screwing up, uh, which was very helpful and uh, truly amazing. And uh, I'm so grateful for it. But she has been an incredible advocate for women in the state of New York and beyond. And we're so lucky to have all of you. So please you. join me in welcoming our amazing panel. Um, we are also, so I'm gonna chat with these amazing women um, for a little while. And uh, I also just wanted to welcome our folks who I hope have now joined us on the live stream. Uh, There were some technical challenges, but I hope they're with us now. Um, We're going to chat, and then I think we are going to hopefully have time for a couple questions towards the end, so uh, get them ready. We'd love to hear from you. Um, So welcome, ladies. Happy 100th anniversary. (laughs) It's exciting. Um, So as I started to say, I mean, it has obviously been an amazing couple years in terms of the progress of women in elected office. Lots of incredible gains in terms of the overall numbers. Obviously, as we'll talk about, a decline in the number of Republican women. So it is not equally balanced on both sides of the aisle. But as you think about this legacy of 100 years and how far we've come, how do you think about what these, what these years to come really need to be in terms of you know, both women's political power but women's power overall in, in American society? And I don't know if we should start with you, Kathy.
1: Well, we think about the next 100 years, they've already started. Uh, I live every single day with that sense of urgency that time is slipping away. And I hearken the ghosts of the suffragettes. We are the home of the Seneca Falls, the start of the women's rights movement. I've been there. It's like going to Mecca. I've been there many times uh, to pay homage to their stories, but also put upon my own shoulders and the shoulders of women I speak to on a daily basis, the burden that they have passed on to us with that torch. Uh, That torch is in our hands today, and while we won the right to vote 100 years ago, that right to vote did not mean equality, and that is the battle that we struggle with today. Uh, The numbers you gave on the number of women participating in the workforce and being college educated, those are phenomenal, but they're in the workforce, but they're not the CEOs. They're they're graduating with advanced degrees, but they're only 20% of college presidents are women. Only 20% of school superintendents are women, even though the majority of people start on the path are women in education. So we seem to have hit this glass ceiling of 20%, 23% of Congress, and New York, progressive state, 33%. -hmm. So I wear my glass ceiling necklace here to remind me, um, and I wore it this morning when I spoke to a large gathering of steel workers in Albany before I came here and there were just a few women in the room and I was so excited because afterward, the three women in the room came up to me and said, we have the same necklace on. And so it's a constant reminder that that 20% needs to turn to 50%. Mm -hmm. We have to fight every single day to get more representation in the corridors of power to continue the work that you do with All In Together because you don't just talk about equality an opportunity in the political process, but it, throughout society. And so I take this very seriously. We have a long way to go to give more women rights uh, in so many areas, freedom from sexual harassment in the workplace, uh, ad- adequate childcare. We can talk a whole forum on how that is a barrier for so many women yeah. running for office and women who want to become a partner in a law firm. how Who's going to watch the kids? Or a woman who has to go to community college while she's working as a waitress and also working uh, in a hotel. So there's Who's watching the kids? That that hasn't changed. I mean, still the weight is on women, and I think that's one of the big barriers that's holding them back.
2: Donna, I know you obviously spent so much of your career thinking about these issues, and
3: over to you. Well, you know, it's wonderful to listen to my former colleague, uh, now lieutenant governor. Um, it, it's great to be here with you all. You know, I think about um, you know as you were talking, I listened to your remarks about African American women and, um, you know, sort of the backbone of our political participation. And I thought about women in Congress. You know, there have only been 57 African-American women who've ever served Mm. in the Congress, and all of them served in my lifetime. Mm. Um, The first elected, uh, Shirley Chisholm in 1968, sworn in in 1969 in my lifetime, and that's the bulk of African American women's participation in the Congress at the highest levels. Um, and, you know, and I think about uh, you know, for women, as much as we celebrate, you know, we had a year of the woman in 1992, and mm-hmm. then we got another year in 2018, and still we're at about yeah. 23%. It's a, I mean, it's exciting on one hand but it's very sobering on the other that progress is really uh, slow. And our political participation is so connected to our economic participation, to our participation yeah. in education. And um, you know, it makes me wonder what it is, what it will take to get over that 50% threshold. And um, this story of women's participation is also about men. And it's about men who are in power who have to give up the reins of that power in order to Mm -hmm. enable um, there to be space uh, for women to recognize our fullest uh, participation. On the other hand, I'm heartened. I'm the mom of a 30-year-old and a young man. What? How's that possible? Yes. And you know what? his view uh, about women and women's capacity and participation Mm. is actually very different from men of my generation. And so it's a reminder, I think, to all of us that change is possible, even if it's slow. Yeah.
2: So Melissa, you were so young when you won elected office with her I'm 28, it's amazing. So now as you think about these last years since that first race. Like, how do you think about these issues? What's changed? What needs to change? What you hope to see?
4: Yeah, I come at it from a different perspective. I I think the year of the woman was 1990, Mm. because that's when I, as a very young attorney, decided that I should run against an incumbent state senator. And my party even said to me, no, no, you can't run for that. Why don't you just run for the House? And I'm like, but the Senate district is better. I think I have more of a shot at that. And I had been a volunteer, and I think a lot of us Mm. kind of grew up working on campaigns. We were comfortable with the give and take. Uh, I'm an undergraduate from Washington and Jefferson College, where uh, I had the great opportunity to take history from one of the just legends, I think, of our college, a gentleman who was a journalist. And he was very, very liberal. And I'm a Republican, and I'm a conservative. But he recognized something in me and challenged me daily in his class by making a point that he suspected I might disagree with. And he helped me hone my debate skills. And it's not just that you agree or disagree, but that you have the depth of knowledge and understanding of your issue to be able to explain it to people to win your argument. You know, as a lawyer, you, you are taught that as well. But I think. In the political sphere, you need to do it in a way that brings people in. You don't have to worry, uh, or you have to worry more about the way you're being perceived uh, by the public, not being concerned about some intellectual argument for a judge. So he taught me those things. And it was very helpful. And I think mentors of all kinds are extremely important. Um, I had a mentor uh, when I decided to actually get involved as a grassroots uh, committee woman. Um, right after law school, there was a woman who was a state representative where I was. And again, she was a Republican from my community, and she didn't want to run for the seat because I called her and I said, you know, some people have suggested I should run for the state Senate seat. I was 27 years old. And when I called her, she didn't laugh. Mm -hmm. She said, that's great. She says, I don't want to run for that. Um, She still had kids at home. She didn't want the bigger district. She was, you know, making one of those decisions. And she said, but I'll help you. Oh Wow. And so that kind of background, I think it's really important, I think, for people just to understand that they can do it, and that with the help around you, and it doesn't always have to be women. Like I mentioned, my professor was a guy, and one of my best mentors in my early political career was a guy named Dick Thornburg, who at the time I met him was the governor of Pennsylvania from, you know, out in Pittsburgh. So I think for for us, that's important for us to seek that, You know, you don't necessarily have to grow up like we did, always working on campaigns. I think if you're a person who comes to uh, a passion about certain issues that may be before your local government or your state legislature or your United States uh, Congress, that you can get involved, it doesn't matter. You can be older, you can be younger, you don't have to yeah. be anything in particular other than an American citizen. Yeah. And it's important that I think everyone look at that as our, it's a participatory government. That means we all have to participate, whether yeah. we are running, helping someone, um, voting, uh, but paying attention to those issues and, and getting that depth of knowledge that I think is yeah. so important. You hear a lot of the debate now that is just so, it's about as yeah. deep as a puddle. And and when people get into the discussions back and forth, it becomes sort of an exchange of of anger or or just simple points that really don't make a whole lot of sense. It's important for each and every one of us who engage in the process to have value and depth Mm -hmm. to our arguments and an understanding of history, which I think is unfortunately too lacking um, these days. So I would encourage really everyone and anybody who's watching us too and not here that it really is for everyone. You know, yeah. when, when the founding fathers were drawing up our, our form of government, they expected people yeah. to leave their profession, serve, and then go back home. Since we're in the Constitution Center, mm-hmm. I have to do So this that's what um, I did. Jeff, Jeff will correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. but, you know,
2: most Americans don't realize. You know, we think of the First Amendment, of course, as the right to free speech, but also enshrined in the First Amendment is the right to petition our grievances. And I think part of what we've found in At All and Together is that that in the TV age, you know, government feels so far away, it feels so alien, so impossible to access, that when we give women even you know, some small access to like a, a local legislator or to meet, even just to meet in person a woman who has run or is in elected office or has worked on campaigns, like it's a game changer. It totally changes their sense of possibility. We've had women. We had a, a survivor uh, who had been assaulted at work, who was just despaired, who came to one of our, our programs in Minnesota last year. She went, she was so inspired after hearing from some of the women in our group that she went and got the law changed in Minnesota, single-handedly, petitioned to change the law in Minnesota so that the reporting requirements for assault would be taken out of the chain of command in the police department where she had been You know, in the police. So it, women have such a capacity to make change, but they have to sort of see it and touch it and feel it. Um, Donna, you mentioned, actually both you and Kathy mentioned also sort of the unfinished work. uh, All of the things that are undone, you talked about childcare. As you both, as you all think about the years to come and all of these gaps, um, I find I'm so shocked that so few women see political participation as a way to fix those things. But now we're at this point where like, the private sector's not fixing some of those things. So as you think about the potential as more and more women sit in elected office at the state levels, at the national levels. Like, what do you hope we will start to see the what are the most important issues to address to continue to accelerate women's progress? Yeah, Kathy. Well,
1: certainly women know the challenges of running a household more than anybody. You bring your own personal experiences to the process. And we bring in empathy and understanding and we're masterful multitaskers. Uh, I was running for office raising little kids, studying for the Maryland Bar Association on top of my New York Bar Association, trying to keep it all together. And it was a crazy time in my life. And I have to tell you, there were some tough times, like when I was running for my first office 25 years ago and my little girl wanted me to tuck her in before she started kindergarten. And I was out knocking on doors because I knew I had to touch every single person in my town of 50,000 running for the same position he ran for Lauren this one gentleman kept me at the door he kept talking and talking and talking I'm like please and it's getting darker and I'm being way far too polite and I'm listening by the time I pulled in the driveway I went upstairs and Katie had cried herself to sleep and I wasn't there the night before she went to kindergarten because I was out campaigning and that little girl is 30 years old I still have mom guilt over that yeah. uh, but she I tell you okay but, but you know what I think that's the message too for all the the women and I I know there's four reasons women don't run for office, because I've, I've suffered from all of them and I've overcome them, which is why I try to encourage so many women to run, but talk to me first. But the, but the, the who's watching the kids question is so profound and it's such a barrier in the sense that you like, oh, I'll miss too many soccer games, I'll miss the teacher conference, I missed all of it. But the end of the day is I have two adult children who have a strong social conscience. They are part of the marches in Washington. They're marching on climate change, they're marching on gun issues, and they're out there. They both live in Washington, D.C., where they were born when I worked for Senator Moynihan, and I'm so proud of them. And you know what, they cut me a lot of slack. I say, I say are you still feeling bad about that? No, Mom, the fact that you missed my seventh birthday, I'll get over that someday. So, so, so we hold ourselves back, but sometimes you just have to power through it because we only have these kids for 18 years. And then we launched them into the world. And my parents took me to marches in the 60s. I was there on the war issue. I was there on civil rights. Uh, my parents worked to integrate my lily white neighborhood. And we had African-Americans on our front porch. And my parents run some sort of hit list with the NRA members. We, I grew up in a crazy environment of social activism. I passed it on to my kids. And I hope my kids will pass it on. That's why women can't sit on the sidelines. You have this responsibility, not just to your society, but also to your kids to be a role model on the potential and the power that we have to bring our voices to the table in full representation. And we can have loud voices at 20%. I've been the only woman in a room so many times it's not even funny. And I've made them listen to me. But wouldn't it be awesome if I could look around the room and see so many more women and know that our voices truly matter, that's the legacy I want to uphold from the right we have to vote into today. Well,
2: I got to acknowledge my mom who's here, who just reminded me that she carried petitions for when Shirley Trism ran for president. You wow. um, my mom is here and she is a there's certainly a reason why I do what I do, and you know, work for Bella Abzug when I was a kid. But that example of our parents and their civic engagement is everything, Donna. What, what,
3: what's the next frontier? What do we need to do? I don't. Know. I mean, I always got really very frustrated, um, both as an activist and a member of Congress, when people would tell me about this narrow category of women's issues, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, my gosh, especially as a mom, as a single mom raising a you know, a kid, I can't actually think of a single issue, whether it's economic or domestic or, you know, international policy that is not a woman's issue. And Mm -hmm. I think that uh, as elected leaders and people who want to be in the fray, it's really important um, to, I think as Melissa described, you know, develop some depth on a whole range of things so that you don't allow people to pigeonhole you and so I think there's a lot um, out there. When I first ran for Congress, um, I decided I was going to run because there was a, um, you know, a guy who represented us in our district, and I just thought, he one, he wasn't doing a great job. And um, there were a whole you know, host of issues. And so here's what I did. I went around and asked everybody I could find who held elective office if they would run and challenge him. And mostly the people who held elective office already were men. And they all said no because they thought there was a big machine and they couldn't beat him, et cetera, et cetera. And so one day I actually got up and I was standing in front of the mirror. I hadn't managed to convince anyone. And I looked at myself, and this is after dozens of conversations. And I actually looked at myself and said, Donna, why don't you run? Well, nobody ever asked me to run. But I had to look in the mirror and ask myself. And I ran down to the board of elections. I paid, I think, $100. I was so grateful that check cleared. Um, (laughs) And I just became a candidate for the House of Representatives. And I came very close in that election. I didn't win. And so when I talk to women, I say, you know, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of losing, for sure. Because a lot of times you have to lose in order to win. And then I won the second time, like, overwhelmingly. Mm. Um, And then in Congress, I at one point, I decided I wanted to run for the United States Senate, and it was a total long shot. Um, but I thought, well, you know, there were no, at that time, no African-American women in um, in the Senate. Now there's? Now there's one, oh, again, no. one, so the second one. Um, there were a, there are a lot of guys who all kind of look like each other. And why not have, you know, another woman in the United States Senate? Um, and it didn't work out, but, I think it was important still to um, to run. And I, I think that for women, we have to expand our horizons and we can't let people tell us no and take ourselves out of the game before we actually play the game. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and so, and then our to-do list can include so much more than it does now than mm-hmm. the bucket of things that are on the table. And, and then lastly, I would say, not be afraid to tell your own story about who you are and what brings you into, mm-hmm. uh, into politics. I think so often, as women, we're so guarded about the things that we can share about ourselves because we think that that's going to be you know, used against us. And I think it's important because people vote for real people. They vote yeah. for authentic uh, people. And there are no better people to tell those stories than, than women who have I've been saying lots lately, of stories.
2: authenticity is our superpower. Really. Yes because I think it is, it is such a differentiator. And I think it is part of what I think also defines modern politics as opposed to even 30, 40 years ago, where I think many women really felt they had to sort of twist themselves into knots. And I, I think you know, that's the legacy of this current cycle, uh, that even the you know, four or five women that ran for president in this cycle you know, it was such a game changer, the way that all of them ran. Uh, as themselves you know really and nothing else and I mean even you know refusing to like get overly made up and Like it's the little things that every single time a woman runs on either side of the aisle Every single time they run they change it for somebody behind them. Melissa your thoughts I mean one one challenge obviously we're now really the numbers of of Republican women in the house really are now so low Um, It's really a shame how we I mean we well, have a two-party system. we got to make sure yeah. we're getting women on both sides of the aisle into the game. How right. have you been thinking about that issue? Well, a we lot of
4: Republican women lost um, yeah. as well. So it's not like Republican retiring. women haven't won and served because sure. there's, there's been significant numbers. And sure. in the year, um, in 2006 and 2008, uh, some of the smartest, most incredible, wonderful public servants that I've ever known in my life lost their seats, and they were women. Yep. They were Republican women. Um, and, I, and I think it's important, you know, I'm sitting up here as the only Republican woman um, on the panel, but I, I'm glad I'm here, and I actually kind of felt compelled to do this, because otherwise there wouldn't have been one.
2: And it's critical.
4: And I think, Donna, you really hit the nail on the head when you said every issue is a women's issue. If anyone who's a, a candidate, I don't care if you're a man or a woman, if you expect to be taken seriously... You better, number one, have your own mind and understand things. And number two, don't think that you have to be pigeonholed into some view because you're a woman or because you're a man. Mm-hmm. That will never be equal if every woman thinks that she has to take the same position on every issue that yep. every other woman takes. I, I honestly, my, I had a chief of staff um, when I was in Congress. He was also with me when I was in um, the Senate for a few years, and he used to use a term He'd say that's reductive, and I said, "Is that really a word?" <laughs> and then I thought about it and the meaning of it, and that is exactly what it is. Because what we do to ourselves if we allow that, you know, that I all we all have to qualify for Emily's list. Well, I'm pro-life. I'm Catholic. My district was pro-life. I'm not going to apply to Emily's list for money. I mean. That would be backwards. I'm gonna to go to the Susan B. Anthony list because yep. they support pro-life women and pro-life candidates. We should be who we are. Mm-hmm. We should think for ourselves. Otherwise, I personally don't think that women will ever be equal mm-hmm. if we all think we all have to be the same. So that having been said, one of the things that you, your first question was, what do we need to do to move forward? We need to just be the best candidate who also happens to be a woman. Mm -hmm. Be the best. Um, Like Melania says, be best. And if you're a woman, do it. And I think, to be honest, we're talking about kids. I have three nieces, uh, a goddaughter, uh, all in college now. Uh, Their views on politics vary. One of them Uh, Goes to a fairly, um, I would consider it a fairly liberal liberal arts college in Ohio. Very good school, Denison. And some of you may be familiar with it. She chose to write a letter to the editor. She's studying economics and trade. She's really interested in those things. She has come down on the side of being somewhat conservative, and she's very interested in some of the things that are happening now on the national level. So she wrote an op ed for the newspaper. At first, she was afraid to submit it because it Was somewhat pro-Trump and some of the agenda that he's pursued now, trying to force some of our trading partners into being more even with us. And so she submitted it, and she came home for like Thanksgiving or something after she submitted it, and she said, I can't believe it. I got yelled at by a lot of students because I submitted that. She said, but more came up to me and said, Wow, that's great, because you're working on the economy for us. When we get out of school, we're going to be more likely to get jobs if our trade is more fair, because there'll be more growth here. So she decided to be who she is, step out as who she is. Of course, I was teasing her about running for office. Uh, she's 21. And, uh, but I think young. it's important that they... The fear and the, some of the, um, what's going on in academia now where, you know, the speaker comes onto campus and gets shouted down, we need to teach our young people that that is just wrong. We need to stop that. You need to open your ears and close your mouth and learn and understand and articulate your differences with each other in a civil way because if we don't teach them that now, we're not going to see that in the future. And I think women can lead the way yeah. in that gentility because we actually, I think, have a better way of expressing ourselves in a lot of ways than men do.
3: Well, and I think that's one of the things the we nation. can do to change.
2: I mean, I think it's it, I, I think you make some really important points about, look, we're as diverse as the nation. We are as mm-hmm. diverse as the nation, period. We do not all agree. We will right. not all agree. And the expectation that we should all agree is unrealistic. It is. And yet, we continue to be treated, and I think reductive is the right word, mm-hmm. that in so much of the narrative about women, and especially women in politics, it's this sort of tacit expectation that if you don't all agree, then you're just not being supportive. Right. And and that that is very reductive. It dismisses Uh, the diversity of perspective that that women bring. Um, I wanted to just bring back for one minute before we open it up for questions for our last few minutes to just talk a little bit more about where we want to go. So if we recognize that all issues are women's issues, and yet also there are some issues particular to women that remain unsolved, Uh, violence against women, the numbers of women in low-wage work, uh, the lack of infrastructure for working mothers, and that is true for working parents, but the burden still falls disproportionately on women, uh, the lack of progress into leadership, as you pointed out, not just in politics, but in so many arenas. As you think about public policy, I mean, Jeff spoke about the ERA. What are some of the things that you really, I don't know if that's, an, you know, if it's still controversial about whether or not that will solve the problems that people are looking for, but what are your sense of, like, what are some of the most, you know, pressing uh, urgent areas that we, we must focus on if we want to accelerate progress, get us off, you know, up, up that list of the global nations that achieve gender equity. By the way, the number one on the list, extra brownie points for anyone who can tell me and not my team, who knows what the number one most gender equal nation on Earth is according to the World Economic Forum? No. Disease? Iceland. 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 Uh, it has <coughs> been Iceland had, a for
1: many country.
2: years. No, it is <laughs> Iceland. Uh, Iceland women worked their butts off for that, by the way. Two, no one handed it to them. Two heads so, of state. Anyway, yes, Kathy, you're You thoughts. know, when I
1: think about issues, and I've, since I ran for town board, I've never liked the phrase women issues either. Yeah. I've, I've never used this because every issue is something we care about. But I think what we need to lean hard into are the bread and butter table issues. I mean, with the kitchen table issues. Parents today are overly stressed out about whether or not they're going to go into debt trying to help their kids pay for college, and if they don't go into debt, then their kid's are going to go into debt. I mean, the cost of college is terrifying to families. But also, once they get at that education, are they going to have the skills that are society and the jobs they're looking for? I mean, are they going to be trained properly? Minimum wage. There should be a higher minimum wage. We have a $15 minimum wage in the state of New York. We lift so many people out of poverty by that one move and the majority of whom are women. Paid family leave. We have the most generous paid family leave program in America, in the state of New York, allowing people to be able to bond with their new babies or adopted child or at the other end of life spectrum to not worry about losing your job if you want to hold your mother's hand as she takes her last breath, as I was able to do when my mom was fighting ALS. These are human issues. They're not women's issues, they're just human rights issues. And we need to talk about them in a way that other people can connect with. Education, health care, the fear of communities that don't have proper health insurance when they know it's the young people or the people with minimum wage jobs who don't have paid leave when they're sick, they're gonna keep showing up to work. They may be exposed to an illness that's gonna contaminate their community. That's what we're facing now because we don't have healthcare for everyone. We have 95% of people in New York covered, but the rest of the nation is nowhere near our numbers. So these are issues we lean hard into, but I will tell you one thing what makes me optimistic. I have seen women govern so differently Mm -hmm. than men. I was and say that. We, we have opportunities to be so much more collaborative. Uh, Don and I went on a trip to Afghanistan. I was a member of the Armed Services Committee. We had a bipartisan plane of women, women who had been elected as part of the Tea Party. And then you get a woman from Maryland and New York. I have to tell you, mm-hmm. At the end of that trip, we were best friends. We had shared stories of what it's like to climb your way to the top when the institution, all the men say, you're not going to be able to make it. We're not going to be there for you. And they did it anyhow. I gravitate to strong women, women who are risk takers, like Donna running for Senate when people told her she wouldn't make it. I was told, don't even run for Congress. Your own party won't support you because you're going to get blown away in the most Republican district in the state of New York as a Democrat. But I ran out there because I believed that if I talked about issues... Medicare for people, making sure I protect Social Security, that I can win over the Republicans I needed. But when it comes to governing, the best example I can tell you is not what happened in the halls of Congress, but on the ball field. You've heard about the Congressional Men's Baseball Team, and they no, get together. Is, so now, 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 you need to hear this. Wait, wait, it's not the
4: Congressional Men's Baseball Team I played. They're, they're, no, no, but there's, but a team. there's a
1: women's team. There's a softball team that women played. Were you on the men's team? I was on the baseball team. Okay, you're on the... There was a men's team where the men... The Republicans play against the Democrats. No,
4: that's the team I was on. Okay,
1: <laughs> yeah, okay, but the women had a bipartisan team. Oh, no, we the, didn't. The, the no, women played. Bipartisan
3: and bicameral. Yeah, we team.
1: had we had the House, yeah. the Senate, Republican women and Democratic women on the same team. No, we, had- we played the media. We bonded together <laughs> against the media, oh, and we were so intensely funny. competitive. Our average age was fifty-three, the age of all these young women that you see on all the networks. I was 24, and we beat them because there's no, one, there's no one more competitive than women. But it was Republican and Democratic women pulling together at, at 7 a.m. with no makeup on. We're out there on the ball fields. We should, then we had to go to our votes in Congress at 9 o'clock, take a shower. So I know that women are naturally more gifted at pulling together diverse points yeah. of view, putting aside your differences, and, and at the end of the day, walking away as friends. And that's what this country needs more of put away that nastiness, we can fight, I, I, I will fight to death on an issue I care about, but at the end of the day, I'm not gonna treat you like the enemy just because you disagree. That's the difference when women govern. The
2: data bears it out and all the research has shown that in fact, women on both sides of the aisle, women members of Congress, both Republican and Democrat, are not only more bipartisan, they are more productive, they pass more bills. Both Republican and Democratic women elected pass more bills, get more done. Uh, once they are in office. Donna, to you and then Melissa. And well, them all I would
3: echo all of those things that uh, that Kathy said and the best uh, softball um, playing together. But, you know, the playing together also resulted in doing legislative work together. I mean, some of the best legislative work I did is because of connections I made from our trip to Afghanistan or um, playing on the softball field because then you could walk away, you know each other, and you say, can we partner on uh, this piece of legislation or the other and I think that that worked tremendously. I'm not really quite sure how the men um, do it. Uh, I I would also I would add to the list of issues and I share some of those same concerns is um, on my to-do list for the last 30 years uh, that I worked on have been working on violence against women and I remember when we worked first to pass the um, Violence Against Women Act in 1994, and you know, I was outside of Congress, really leading a grassroots effort around the country, and we thought, you know, this will give us um, a leg up. But even to this day, still one in four women report that they've experienced domestic violence, sexual assault. And I think that when you're not safe in your home and you're not safe on the streets, it's really hard to then think about your education, your family's needs, all of those things. And um, and I think that this is something that this country has to, we actually have to put our um, all of our energy into trying to figure out this problem of learned behavior. When I was in uh, Congress, I remember I would go around to visit very, we had, you know, several jails and a couple of Uh, prisons in in Maryland and I would go around and visit them and Mm -hmm. I'd talk with with the inmate population and almost to a one whether it was visiting a men's prison or uh, a women's prison and I would ask about violence in the home either that had been witnessed or that they had perpetrated or experienced and every single time, almost every single hand went up whether it was men or women who had either experienced domestic violence had uh, grown up in a home uh, that was violent or themselves had been perpetrators or victims. This is really a pervasive learned behavior and it really does hold women back in the workplace. It it, it impacts our economic productivity as a nation and I think it keeps us from doing uh, the real work of achieving equality Mm -hmm. and parity at so many levels um, and I would put that, you know, sort of totally at, I mean, it's always a long list of issues that you have to work on, but I would certainly put that at the
2: top. Absolutely, and I think it's, a, it's part of the reality of where women are today, of where we are in the country that people don't know and don't appreciate. I have to just say, we're so proud of one of the, like, greatest accomplishments of our work at All in Together is We've trained 900 survivors of domestic violence just in the last two years on political and civic leadership, and those women are out in their communities now working to change the laws on behalf of other victims we need those women to participate and to step up and to help change the status quo and uh, you know the work that you've done on their behalf has been so powerful Melissa last word to you on this t- question and then we'll just open it up for our last few minutes
4: in yeah, the question again sorry with... just
2: the, what you would like to see is what you think are the most important sort of uh, next steps, investments that we have to make okay. to make sure that we keep progressing in terms of parity for okay. women.
4: In and just real quickly, I think because we're all women sitting up here and have served, we all have been asked to address some of the issues that are more unique to women. And when I was in the state senate, I was very close to the community of women that ran, uh, they called them domestic violence shelters at the time. And Through my learning at the time, a lot of the women I I met were economically dependent upon their abuser, which put them in a situation, especially if they had children, where it was really hard to leave. And so I worked together with those heads of those uh, shelters to do two things. One is to find a way to provide um, a place to live that wouldn't be just a temporary shelter, so, we actually spawned some, we'd say apartments, kind of, that were located in areas that were, would not be identified so that the, the women could live there and be safe while they were partaking of an educational program. And so, we had community colleges step up. We had a couple of actual unions step up uh, with their training programs to help these women who couldn't support themselves and their kids. get them into a program and out of a program quickly so that they were going to earn enough. Mm. One of my favorites was a woman who ended up being a forklift operator. She ended up making a really good hourly wage and was able to leave uh, her husband with her two children, one of whom was pretty severely disabled. Mm. About two or three years later, he actually murdered his new partner. And it became a big news story, and this woman was willing to speak out about it, and said that that would have been her, but for this program yeah. that helped her find the strength and the education so that she could actually leave so when we look at the practical solutions to those problems, some of them are simply you know helping that individual get away now there's also the other side of it, and I think it was mentioned that you know the perps need help too mm-hmm. uh, anybody who's a, in, you know if you're in prison, you need some kind of of rehabilitation or, or education to, to learn that you can't live this way. And so we actually worked uh, also with our local, local organizations to help usually men, the perpetrator of domestic violence, to understand and, and hopefully progress. And, and we had a lot of success. I mean, you can't say it was 100%, but any yeah. change is always good. But I think as we move forward, there's just... Um, you know, I would encourage more women, if you have an interest in this, you know, to, to run. And I'm a mentor to several. In fact, I was just on the phone with one earlier today. We were talking about it uh, in the green room. Uh, a Very good friend of mine. She's a state representative now in Pennsylvania. She's running for her second term. And we filed recently. And she now has a man who she defeated in the primary two years ago, running to try to unseat her now in the mm-hmm. primary. So we're all going to be out there working to make sure <laughs> that loses big. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that that's really, I think the mentorship is really important. Yeah. I think it's important for, and it's, like I said earlier, just get out there and get involved for everyone. I think the women who are out there and candidates for office, sure, they may be able to marshal a good group of volunteers who are women, because that's, you know, a lot of our friends. And I would encourage the friends of women who are running, don't just leave them out there. My One of my very good friends is Heather Heidelbach. She's... The Republican nominee, because nobody else is running in the primary, to run for Attorney General of the state of Pennsylvania. Heather is probably the most qualified person I think we've ever had run for Attorney General in Pennsylvania. She's been a litigator for 35 years and just really successful, uh, good mom, the whole nine yards, but she has had this groundswell of women, especially attorneys, who she's worked Mm -hmm. with over the years, come out and work with her to win that seat. So I think that's what it takes, Um, not to say just support her because she's a woman. But support her because you know because she'll she do deserves a job. It. Exactly. So I
2: think we have time for a couple questions, um, maybe one or two before we um, wrap. I'd be. Yeah. Oh, oh, we have them on the. Oh, I love this. That's so fancy. Okay. Um, ah, good question. Okay. So, do you have any comments about the effects of huge political spending since Citizen United on the progress or advancement of women in elected? Uh, federal position's elected office. So the impact of money in politics on women in politics. Kathy?
1: Uh, I have been trying to get campaign finance reform at the national level and state levels since I was a young staffer to Senator Moynihan back in the 80s. uh, Because I believe that money is a barrier to women. Because first of all, a lot of women have female friends, but they don't control the pocketbook. They don't have the resources that the men do. Secondly, women are more uncomfortable. I hate to admit this, asking for money to do the fundraising. So this is one of the barriers. And I tell women, the guys don't like it either. Unless you're independently wealthy, like the guy who is worth $65 million who ran against me for Congress, uh, you have—I'm a public servant. I have to fundraise. It's not fun. I'd rather there be public financing, like we just instituted in the state of New York, which is going to be in effect not in very short order, following the New York City model where you raise small donor amounts to a certain certain threshold, we will match that for you to take the big money out of politics because it is unseemly, it has undue influence, it is wrong, and Citizens United will go down in history as being one of the worst decisions with respect to protecting our democracy that this country has ever seen. So (laughs) it's a barrier for women.
3: Anyone
2: else
3: want to add Donna? How do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I have to tell you, I mean, I... So the very first debate that I ever did on national television, I was in my mid-20s and it was against Mitch McConnell about the need for campaign finance reform and public financing of elections. I won that night on Nightline, Ted Koppel. There you Um, go. However, we still don't don't have it. And um, when um, Citizens United uh, the decision was made in the Supreme Court, I introduced the first constitutional amendment um, to repeal Citizens United. And I remember when I did that, there were, I had three total count them three co-sponsors, right? And you all know, you don't get anything passed with three co-sponsors. No, even with a hundred uh, right. right. And um, today, this is however many years later. Eight years? Ten. Ten years later. And now, um, virtually every Democrat in the house has signed off on a constitutional amendment two and two Republicans to um, and I think passed enough. in HR the idea passed in HR1 and so that's like a that's kind of a sea change from three um, to where we are now and I think the public is well down the line the public doesn't like this idea of all of this money sort of Uh, governing our our political discourse. And for women, it is so, the system is so debilitating because uh, it is, first of all, it's what keeps women out. Um, Sometimes the political apparatus and leadership will make a decision before even knowing anything else that if a woman's name comes forward, it's immediately dismissed because um, it's presumed that she won't be able to put together the resources uh, to run money. for um, to run for office, I certainly saw that when I was the co-chair of the or the um, vice chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, is that names would come forward of totally capable women and immediately dismissed um, because money. of money. And I think for Republican women, um, especially Republican women who are running in in primaries, that that becomes a delimiter. Uh, for women to be able to get through a primary process and uh, and I've heard, you know, I've had Republican women tell me that, you know, they've been, you know, kind of closed out of that primary process, and it's been around the issue of, um, of money, and so we really have to change the system. I mean, if you're, I mean, right now, first of all, the number of millionaires there are in the Congress has gone so far. I always, the worst day for me, was always the day when they published your net worth um, in the, you know, because all the newspapers pick up on it. And I was always, in my delegation, I was always, you know, the poorest. In the Congress, I was always in the bottom group. And then they would, like, broadcast it, you know, sort of everywhere. <laughs> um, but I think that we have to have a system where, you know, if you're if you're a, a mom has been, you know, raising her, her kids and... You know, organizing in a community that, and you're not wealthy, that you should be able to run for elective office and money shouldn't be a barrier to that.
2: My town of 30,000 people in New York, our race cost $190,000 to win in a town of 30,000 people. Right? And that just gives you an idea. It's a New York suburb, but that is what these races are like. This is a local part time elected job. A standard congressional seat now is a minimum of $2 million. Oh, yeah, especially
3: if it's a competitive seat. Yeah. I think it's like $4 million. It's now. 2 to $4 million. Yeah. I mean, the
2: numbers are just so incredibly off the charts. So the last question before So wait got... a minute. Oh, wait, sorry, please. So I come to
4: this with a different point of view, and I think it's important to hear, okay, because please. I am shocked at what you said about Republican women feeling shut out in a primary. I just referred to my friend who has a man running against her And we all laughed because we know she'll crush him in the primary. Now, she's an incumbent, but she also defeated him last time when there wasn't an incumbent. So I would disagree. I think women, in a lot of ways, have an advantage when they're up against a man. Um, I have another friend who's running to replace a retiring state representative. There's two men and a woman running in the primary. Now, she's the only one with any elected experience. She's been a school director on the school board now for eight years, 10 years. And um, she's running for the state housing. Now, I think she has an advantage. She's the only woman on the ballot. There's two men. And I know that a lot of people know her because she's been active in the community. The guys may be able to raise more money. But she already has people. She has people. And don't forget that. I think that money's important. But it's not the thing that wins elections. It's the votes. Money can't vote. And the other issue about women, I'm not for public financing, so we're going to just disagree there. But I think one of the important things about it, and I think why women are sometimes, and I agree, put at a disadvantage when it comes to fundraising, are because it's the men who are writing the checks. If the women would step up and write checks, We'd be a lot better off. And so that's what actually I'm shaming my friends now into helping my friend Heather in her attorney general race because I'll say, did you write her a check? You don't have to write her a $2,000 check. Write her a $200 check. Mm-hmm. But you have to help her because, A, once you write that check, you're committed to that race. It's important to you that that person be elected, and you'll put more effort in it as well. And I think it's important to have the public support people in that way and that's why I really I'm not for public financing because to be honest I think that we'd be spending a lot of money on people who really haven't built up that support the way they should before anyone hands them a dollar to run a race. I think
1: I think it comes down to which election you're running for. Um, I had seven million dollars of shadowy money that was allowed after Citizens United to destroy my reputation, no, you and so you know, if I was running for town board and I'm asking for $20 checks and I ask my neighbors to do a barbecue in the backyard and yes, it is yeah. so grassroots and, and I'm, and I'm mm-hmm. all about the farm team, starting people out at, in those levels and, and not just paying your dues, but getting the knowledge and the experience so you are the best qualified to run for Congress someday. Yeah. So I'm a believer in, in the process, although there's certainly exceptions, but um, I had such negative ads run against me by the Koch brothers and Carl Rove Uh, They were so bad, I didn't want to vote for myself. I said, I said, I didn't didn't know I was that bad. I didn't know I could fly on a broom that well, because they had wonderful pictures of me on a broom. And the little girl next door said, you know, Mommy, please turn off the TV. They make Mrs. Hochul look so scary all the time. That's what's happened with the presence of money because of Citizens United. I'm all about getting rid of that.
4: From those groups. Now, if if every candidate collects uh, contributions from individuals, Yep. I'm good with that. I had a million dollars dropped in my race two weeks before the election in negative ads from moveon.org, and that's how yeah. I ended up losing. Mm-hmm. All right, so 30
2: seconds each of you, lightning round, oh. before we close, because I am committed to on-time Lightning, yes. Huh? I'm committed to that. It's my core value, right. on time. 30 seconds. 100 years from now, where? what are we talking about 100 years from now? The 200th anniversary of suffrage. What have we achieved? 30 seconds and... Go, Kathy Hochul.
1: They're going to talk about how in 2020 everything changed. We had six women, six women on the debate stage running for president. That is a game-changing photo that's in in my mind and all the young women out there who now think that's normal. So we're going to go light years ahead starting with this year. I'm a believer that people see the value of women and we're going to take back this country with the power of women in the Senate, in the House, in our state houses.
4: Okay, 30 30 seconds. 30 seconds, Melissa. Oh, In 100 years, I think the men are going to have, they're going to start having forums like this
3: and (laughs) be worried about getting back into elective office. 100 years. Donna Edwards. Okay, 100 years. Oh, pray goodness, we're going to have a woman president. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Please join me in
2: thanking our amazing panel, Donna Edwards, Melissa Hart, and Lieutenant
1: Governor's (laughs) Happy (laughs) Hotel.
0: It
1: was a lot of fun to be with you. you.
4: Where's the oh, yeah, That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: to, you have to excuse that. I didn't mean to. Uh, didn't mean to oh,
4: like, I'm perfectly fine. Like, okay. I'm going to go wash my hands.
0: Um. This program was presented in partnership with All In Together and generously sponsored by Procter and Gamble and Lord Abbott and Co. LLC. This episode was engineered by Greg Sheckler and me, Jackie McDermott. It was produced by Tanaya Tauber and me. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review and subscribe to the show and tune in next week. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.